Mm. Um, but we're uncovering pretty incredible stuff. And so what's happened just this month is the declaration of Canastrero, which it's, it's a bombshell. Basically, today, like what we can say today is if the 9-11 truth movement was looking for an inside job, here it is. Mm-hmm. Here's the inside job. It's right there. But what I wanted to finish up on this point with, just to give you a little bit of a, a broader picture of 9-11 truth and, and this whole topic, this all hinges on a couple of figures who we'll get into. And there's actually figures surrounding them, which we'll get into as well. But this all hinges on two individuals called Khalid Al-Midar and Nawaf Al-Hasmi. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty, physical, and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay? I am. <laughs> All right. All right, everybody. This is In Liberty and Health returning to the show. I have Adam Fitzgerald and then his first time on, Mr. Sean Russell, both of uh, people I follow on Twitter and enjoy talking to. So uh, how you guys doing today? Hey Kyle, doing great. Thanks for having me. Good, of course. Well, once again, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so um, I, I was joking before the show that we're quote unquote disinformation disrespectors because uh, um, we're kind of like I I don't even want to necessarily say in the middle, but we want to know the truth. We want to know if you know the mainstream media is telling the truth, with the majority of the time they're not, or if maybe a little bit of the kook narrative is the truth, which we know it's usually not, or you know kind of see what's going on out there. Because um, as Adam and I talked about last time, there's so much poison pilling that goes on in any one individual topic that um, it, whenever you disagree with something um, or, or like you disagree with either narrative, then both the extremes on the sides are going to say, well, you're just showing for this side. You're just showing for the other side. So um, when I talk about the treatment, which I'm sure you guys can infer what I'm referring to here, um, when I say, well, it looks like it's hurting some people but it's not like population control then one side says oh i can't believe you're simping for you know big pharma and then the other side says oh this is very safe and effective so um, i know it's a little bit of a tangent but uh um i don't know any thoughts on that before we start rolling (laughs) well i think that really speaks to uh what we deal with in the 9-11 truth movement (laughs) is that there's an absence of nuance people tend to get really really hard line and they go very, very far in either direction. And it, it's like an ideological thing, I suppose, yeah. is maybe how you could look at it. It's almost religious, where yeah. people will disregard things out of sort of a almost dogmatic type attitude. And so, like, pieces of information, which really honestly should be all just assessed, pieces of information get abandoned by either side, really. You know, if you're talking about, like, a hardline debunker or, like, a hardline truther, uh, they're they're going to really pick and choose what they want to uh, assemble as a sort of a theory, and it's that lack of nuance that uh, I see constantly. I'm sure Adam sees it. 
you probably see it yourself, Kyle. You just alluded to this issue. Uh, people get really, really dug in on certain things and they're blinded by it because they're, they're going to disregard information. And I think it leads to people being incomplete there. They, and that, and that's, that's the, the nine 11 commission. It's, it's incomplete. So, uh, that's why, uh, I'm thrilled to talk about some of this stuff, especially these new releases and this new information that it is getting reported on, but pretty sparsely. And so I'm thrilled that somebody wants to talk about this stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. So before I throw it over to Adam, I, I, I saw you guys like diving in on a few people because, um, I feel like there's just this instant cynicism with some government narratives and completely reasonably. So I'm not saying these people aren't justified in being very cynical about government narratives, but like sometimes people just default to the contrarian position without giving any thought. And then they'll boil in whatever conspiracy they like to that narrative. So that way they can kind of push out the information that they want to see rather than saying, okay, well, this is, you know, what the truth is. And this is like my speculation. And, you know, we can kind of go from there rather than, you know, I, I hate to say Tim pool already, but Tim pool is one of these people who will omit all the information that goes against Trump, but then he'll put all the good information out there. Like he says, Oh, I love his foreign policy. You know, Oh, no drone strikes, none of this. I'm like, you cannot say that. And, and then you can't claim to be a non-biased actor because you're giving people information under the pretense that it's not biased, but that you're omitting a huge amount of information that would look your chosen, that would make the person that you like look bad. And, and just that shit drives me absolutely nuts. If you would just come out and say, hey, I take full-blown concussions from Trump's penis all the time. Okay, fine. You're off the hook, but he won't do that. So I'm going to call it out. Uh, so yeah, go ahead, Adam. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, a great example of this would be, uh, I was at a Twitter space yesterday that Sean was at uh, when they were talking about 9-11. It was actually a big space. It was like 250 people there, uh, probably the biggest 9-11 Twitter space I've ever been on. Mm -hmm. And was headed by uh, somebody named Phil Kircher, who had Andy Steele, who was a spokesman for architects and engineers, who also hosts a radio show called 9-11 Freefall. And I just happened to come into the uh, space. I didn't even know it was on. And Somebody actually said, I think it was uh, Nelson that gave me the Nelson Martin's DJ Thomas Dead here, mm -hmm. gave me the link to the uh, space. So I said, all right, might as well, what's on here? And um, I raised my hand because somebody was talking about uh, the uh, the Pentagon, I think, was something what happened at the Pentagon. It was uh, questionable. And um, that's the main dividing line of the 9 11 truth movement, whether a plane crashed or not. And um, I got to speak. And uh, for a while, they let me speak and stuff. And uh, the guy had kept having me on and kept saying, uh, I like your position and stuff like that. Then, but you had other people who basically were propagating the same old theories that have been around for, you know, since 2003. And uh, I was, you know, solidifying the fact that here you have evidence of eyewitnesses, physical evidence, analytical and technical evidence of the plane taken off, Dulles and whatnot. And you had people that would just would not hear it. One woman near the end basically said no plane hit the first tower uh, at all. And then when I tried to talk with her, she, she was adamant. No, no, I, I all the videos are manipulating stuff. And she left, basically. So like Sean said, I think what the problem with the 9-11 truth movement and just in general is that you had so much, oh, there's so much a wash of disinformation online. And at the other hand, we, the the good information that you talk about, Sean, is actually underreported by, of course, the legacy media. 
And this actually helps the state because the state doesn't want an educated public about what happened on 9-11. Go ahead, talk about no hijackers, talk about no planes, talk about holograms, because you know what? It all leads down to a dead end and you don't get that investigation that you desperately want. Mm -hmm. And so I was a bit surprised that a bunch of truthers actually wanted uh, me to speak at such a long, uh, for such a long time. It was like two hours. Um, I think I was there for like two hours, 20 minutes. I was pretty surprised. It lasted about two in the morning. Um, but uh, I hope that maybe in the future, younger people like Sean and Darren and, you know, the kids at Project for New American Century, they can basically reach the big audience that I could and then basically build a new truth movement where we can actually hold people accountable for 9-11. I still have hope for that. So um, and I think what I'm seeing is a turn, actually. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, I, I, my understanding of, and this is going to sound so like basic, but like, mm. so nine eleven started with you know, P, or um, you know, basically response to our foreign policy, and there were supposedly a lot of other hijacking events that were supposed to be going on, right? And now, obviously, a lot of this information is, hey, there were no planes that hit anything. You know, the the videos are altered. Um, what were these documents that were published and what does this kind of add to the 9-11 story as you guys understand it? Adam, you want me to give a little introduction to sort of what we're talking about here today? Yeah, sure. Um, well, the documents are the Canistrero documents from the Office of Military Commissions. Uh, a little bit about Donald Canistrero. He's actually a former uh, Drug Enforcement uh, Administration officer, a special agent, actually. For over 20 years. Um, he got involved with the Office of Military Commissions and in April of 2016 um, started investigating uh, Saudi Arabian links, financial and analytical and uh, uh, logistical support to two members of Al-Qaeda who later became part of the 9-11 attacks. Um, when he started investigating these Saudi links, he found out that there was a couple of uh, Saudi officials uh, that were basically involved with these two hijackers, two known Al-Qaeda operatives, and they were inside the United States. At the same time, the CIA, who was uh, basically running a uh, dual covert operation with the Saudi government, um, were conducting these operations without the knowledge of the State Department or the FBI for that matter which would make this an illegal operation of sorts. We're, we've, we've known this for a while, myself, Sean, uh, and others, but we just didn't have the, um, the direct information, the direct evidence to suggest this. When this document came out two weeks ago, uh, I remember being in a complete state of shock. It solidified all my suspicions that, yes, you know, I think that there was a uh, foreign and domestic intelligence services that were operating out west, much less the east coast, which we're waiting on information for that. But now we know for sure that uh, through this uh, document, which Canistrero basically interviewed ex-FBI, ex-CIA, and even former 9-11 congressional officials, uh, with most of them uh, uh, talking on conditions of anonymity, basically coming out and saying, yes, there was an illegal operation involving the CIA and Saudi Arabian government in monitoring of two hijackers in the hopes of having mm -hmm. Al-Qaeda informants to basically give them intelligence. So, for example, the document states that Omar al uh basically 
who was a Saudi official working for the Saudi government, um, was uh, friendly with these two men. Now, he was interviewed by the FBI in 2003 and basically gave a conflicting testimony that he gave to uh, the 9-11 Commission. And basically that he said that he walked into the restaurant and saw these two men, Khalid Al-Midar and Nawab Al-Hazman. But according to his associate, Kaysan Bin Don, and later to the FBI, he basically said, no, that, that wasn't the case. Um, he was in the restaurant first, and then Khalid Al-Midar and Nawab Al-Hazmi came in. But whatever story you want to believe, he basically says that he helped them get in the park because he felt sorry for them, that they were in this country, didn't speak much English, and he wanted to help them get an apartment. But later on, when the FBI actually interviewed him, agents from this operation called Operation Encore, he basically told them, uh, they basically told uh, members of this mosque that he belonged to, the King Fab Mosque in Los Angeles. The FBI said, has he ever done this to anybody else before? And they all said no. He was very frugal with his money. Um, interestingly enough, at the same time, where was he getting paid from? He was getting paid from a front company called Dalla Efco. But he was also an employee over 23 years for this company called the uh, Office of uh, Air Arabian Presidency or something like Saudi Arabian Air Presidency. And his um, uh, salary was about maybe $500. But when Khalid Al-Midar and Al-Fahadmi came into the country, it suddenly became $3,500. So we can safely assert that the funding was coming from uh, Omar Al-Biyumi through this company at the same time. There was an associate of Omar al-Biyumi named Osama Basnan. Basnan was actually a militant who actually had pictures of Osama bin Laden in his house and actually threw a party back in 1994, a known Egyptian militant called Omar Abdel Rahman, which the FBI knew about. So this guy had longstanding links to terrorism and he knew terrorist uh, individuals. He was getting money from his wife, and his wife is Mawida Dwijak. And this money was actually coming from a woman named Haifa bin Faisal. Now, you're probably saying, well, who's Haifa bin Faisal? Well, she's the wife of the former U.S.-Saudi ambassador to the United States, uh, Bandar bin Sultan, who's nicknamed Bandar Bush because he's close friends of the Bush family. And uh, their account was through Riggs Bank, uh, which has very nefarious links to uh, individuals involved with um, uh, countries that uh, propagate terrorism, especially uh, Saudi Arabia. Okay, so... That's basic Yeah, okay, so I... Tell me what I'm missing here because I want to try to summarize what I got from what you just said. So basically, um, this document confirms that the that there were Saudis who were essentially meeting with congressional officials who had pretty close ties to the Bush family. Um and Specifically around the time of 9-11, their salary increased through a shell company. It, do, do do I kind of got like a real loose box around that? Uh yeah. So there was so you had you had Saudi officials working on behalf of the Saudi government who was working on part in pair with the CIA. Mm -hmm. And you also had a former uh, uh official who is known to the Bush family, who was given money through two intermediaries going directly to somebody who is known to Khalid Al-Madar and Awaf al-Hazmi in the hopes of separating this money. Now, you can't, in regards to that, you can't say that Bandar bin Sultan is basically giving money to two terrorists. Even though that money went to terrorists, he can basically distance himself and say, I gave it to Mawida, I gave it to my wife, 
who gave it to another woman for medical procedures because that was the, the that's the reason for the money that was given by Moita Duija. But on the other hand, you basically have an illegal operation involving the CIA because by law, the CIA is not allowed to conduct operations inside the United States without full approval of the, the State Department, but this was not, or the National Security Council. So you you had the CIA operation involving the Saudis mm-hmm. monitoring uh, these two men, uh, this, uh, using Saudi officials, monitoring these two Al-Qaeda operatives who later became part of the 9-11 attacks. The only thing we can't pinpoint is whether they knew the attacks were going to happen beforehand. We don't know that yet. Uh, so you don't have motivation, essentially. No, but we do have illegal uh, operations happening with the CIA. This is actually very damaging to Saudi Arabian government and the CIA. Incredibly okay. damaging. So it's basically like you know that the fire's there, but you just can't find the lighter. Would that be an appropriate kind of analogy? I would like that, yes, very much. <laughs> okay, yeah. It, no smoking uh, gun yet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's uh, it's kind of funny because by the time this airs, um, the reason why I tweeted out pay attention to the Libertarian Institute tomorrow because my article with uh, Steve Bannon, Miles Guo, and Lee Mang Yan will be airing tomorrow. They're actually going to have that as their lead article tomorrow, and that's the first article I ever wrote. So I'm I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud about it. So you um, thank you. So um, it, it, the reason why I bring that up is because uh, Steve Bannon was given, I think, like multi-million dollars, and one loan in particular was given to Steve Bannon from Miles Guo for quote-unquote strategic consulting fees. So, um, you know, and, and you could assume, you know, what that's for, because obviously he's bankrolling mm-hmm. Bannon, who, in, in my estimation, is compromised on being hawkish on China because his financier is, you know, a CCP dissident who wants regime change in China because he's defaulted on a bunch of loans to different CCP billionaires. So, um, you know, that's a completely separate and irrelevant tangent. But, um, uh, Sean, anything you kind of got to add to anything that I said or that Adam kind of covered there? Yeah, um, Adam went into deep water really quick there. Um, <laughs> what I want to do is I'll give just a little bit of a backdrop that we can oh. sort of hang that on and then we can compare it to uh, to sort of a background image of, of what we're talking about with 9-11 truth and 9-11 investigation. This month, the big news is the declaration of Donald C. Canisterero. So it's 22 pages of information. It's hundreds of line items of data. Um, some of it uh, is like uh, effectively redacted and that you can't you can't read names for all of these people. You can deduce who he's talking about. But uh, it's, it's a lot of information in a very tight package. So um, something that I'm already saying is the 22 pages is more important than the 28 pages. Mm-hmm. And that was what I wanted to get at here to sort of frame this topic. Because it exists within a larger discussion about uh, files being released, trickle over time after you know the 2010s or so so i mean what i can say out the gate is like this is the biggest news in maybe a decade all right guys um i'm absolutely thrilled with the uh, show's new sponsor um i am now sponsored and uh, have an affiliate through lmnt electrolytes um i've used these electrolytes for years um back when i used to do a lot of fasting in fact i used to drink 
sometimes I want to say up to seven a day, seven little packets. So um, the packets are full of all the electrolytes that you need to perform and hydrate yourself properly. Um, you need sodium for pretty much every single function in your body, despite what um, a lot of people may tell you. Um, sodium doesn't actually cause a lot of the issues that uh, people kind of would have you believe. So um, just real quick to give you a little bit of facts. Um, you don't need sugar to hydrate. Electrolytes and water don't require glucose to pass through the gut. The average American consumes over 60 pounds of sugar a year. And um, when it comes to athletic performance, um, you can actually lose up to seven grams per day in hot climate. So um, make sure you click on the affiliate link below to get all your hydration needs. And like I said, I'm super stoked to have these guys um, teamed up with the podcast and uh, just make sure you get your uh, electrolytes through Element. All right, guys, thanks. But it doesn't mean very much if you don't understand the backdrop here. So I wanted to just talk a little bit how we got here. So over the last year and a half or so, we've been seeing a lot more information finally released under the Biden administration of all things. But yeah. we're seeing a lot more information released and it's it's allowing us to fill in the gaps. So like what was alluded to earlier is like we sort of had a theory about what was really going on with the 9-11 operation and uh, with the cover up afterward, but we were missing some details. So we, we sort of had to construct a loose framework about what we think this looks like. Now we're getting more of those details and we can plug those in. So what's been going on ever since the Obama administration is we've been working off of the 28 pages. Now, some 9-11 investigators, reporters, and researchers were already pretty sure that like, hey, we've got there's something going on with Saudi Arabia. It's it's even kind of obvious to the common person when they just look at the uh, national background of the 9-11 hijackers, even just according to the official narrative, right, the official story. And so the 28 pages released during the Obama administration was what was missing from the joint house inquiry into the uh, intelligence uh, activities uh, preceding 9-11, basically, what did the intelligence services know leading up to this event? And then you can use that to sort of compare with what happened, what did everyone say after the fact, like with the 9-11 commission and how that all stacks up. So the 28 pages basically says, hey, we need to be looking at uh, state funding. So like if we're talking about state terrorism, well, I mean, obviously Iraq got blamed for 9-11 and we all saw what happened over there in the Middle East, but in actuality, what you're actually dealing with is most likely Saudi Arabia. Well, they're an ally. Well, the 28 pages gave us that hint. Some people were already hip to it. Like, I'm pretty sure John Gold and others, they were already sure, hey, we're looking at Saudi state uh, sponsorship at least. Well, ever since then, there was a long gap where we didn't have that much new information released. Now, we were working with the information that we had. And we were sort of trying to stack together what this all means. But about a year and a half ago or so, we started to get information from Operation Encore. So previously, we were working off the pent bomb investigation, which is really important just to look at, hey, what did the original investigators discover? What did they think? What did FBI think? What did CIA say or not say about all of this? And so what we now know is the information from Operation Encore, the follow-up 
to the pent bomb investigation. And that's given us even more information about what we were already basically assuming after we saw the 28 pages, which was apparently pretty, uh, uh, pretty mind blowing uh, in its day. Uh, before it was released to the public, this was information that was withheld from the joint inquiry. And it was only known to certain members of Congress who were able to uh, like basically go into a private room by themselves with no notes or cameras or phones. And they could look at that information, but they couldn't talk about it. And uh, I, I believe that there was uh, at the time a sentiment expressed by someone about how they couldn't speak about the information that was contained in those 28 pages, but it drastically changed the way they viewed United States foreign relations in the Middle East. And different 9-11 people interpreted that in different ways. But with the most recent information over the, like, over the last year and a half or so, it's like well beyond that. And all the details are coming out. There's thousands of pages of, of the Operation Encore files that uh, I haven't read them. I think even Adam is like like a machine over there trying to read through them all. He, he probably hasn't got through them all either. Mm. Um, but we're uncovering pretty incredible stuff. And so what's happened just this month is the Declaration of Canastrero, which it's, it's a bombshell. Basically today, like what we can say today is if the 9-11 truth movement was looking for an inside job, here it is. Mm -hmm. Here's the inside job. It's right there. But what I wanted to finish up on this point with, just to give you a little bit of a, a broader picture of 9-11 truth and, and this whole topic, this all hinges on a couple of figures who we'll get into, and there's actually figures surrounding them, which we'll get into as well. But this all hinges on two individuals called Khalid Al-Midar and Nawaf Al-Hasmi. They were the burliest of the muscle hijackers that took control of flight 77 on 9-11 and hit the Pentagon, which incidentally would have been like, you know, the, the, the bigger act of war regarding that day. You could probably spin a pretext, even if they didn't hit a military installation. I know Reagan hit Libya for less back in the eighties, but it's like, that's your act of war, right? Well, these guys, we had been assuming for years were some kind of intelligence assets because of their histories, because of their connections. And what we're looking at now with the declaration of Donald C. Canestrero is more data about a cover-up, more data about uh, obstruction, more data about how people were lying, even under oath. Like we, we were already pretty much presuming that uh, some of the people that were interviewed for the commissions and for the inquiries that they were lying. Well, now it's like other people, even reputable figures whose, whose names aren't included, but you can somewhat deduce who these people are. People in FBI, people in CIA are saying, oh, yeah, there's there's deception involved in this. So we've got like basically a proven cover up, basically a proven crime on the part of the intelligence services regarding their handling, especially Midar and Hazmi. And the final point here is that those are topics of discussion, which the 9-11 truth movement for 20 years have avoided like the plague. 
because the biggest topic of discussion in 9-11 truth has always been no plane hit the Pentagon and how there was something suspicious with the airplanes and how the hijackers didn't exist or how they were still alive or didn't take part. It's the link that leads you to the intelligence services. So the point here again to reiterate is if the 9-11 truth movement was looking for an inside job, well, it's right here. But if you don't believe that there's hijackers or hijacked airplanes, mm -hmm. if you believe that a missile hit the Pentagon, none of that matters if you're trying to argue that, say, law. You can't make a strong argument for any of them. And all of that goes out the window, which Adam talks about that all the time. He's like a broken record, he says himself. So I hope that gives a little bit of a, of a backdrop to what this newest information is taking part of, if that makes any sense at all, I hope. Okay, so kind of what I got from that was basically, uh, what were the hijackers on Flight 77's names again? I just don't well, we're talking about Khalid Al-Midar and Nawaf Al-Khazmi. Those okay. are bin Laden's hand-picked uh, seasoned Al-Qaeda veterans. They, they fought in the Balkans. They're like, you know, bad dudes. Okay. So, they so were known terrorists, by the way. And they were the hijackers on the flight that hit the Pentagon, correct? They're two out of five, or the number is disputed, actually, but yeah. Mm, okay. All right. So it, it's so funny because, like, in my mind, you would think, and I'm sure you guys probably battle this mental thing all the time. It's like, this is like red meat for the truth movement right here because everybody agrees that the intelligence um, services are bad, right? And from what I understand of everything I've heard you guys talk about, like, this is such a big topic. Like, to me, it was almost simpler to just say, like, oh, well, 9-11 was just, you know, disastrous foreign policy mistakes. People got pissed off and then hit the uh, Twin Towers. But, like, the more I learn, the more I realize I know nothing. And I, that's usually a fascinating thing, but like, it, it still is. But, like, at the same time, it's just like, holy shit. But it seems like it was a perfect storm of – egos and the intelligence agencies kind of button heads that cause um either malfeasance or you know complacency in 9-11 happening so um from what i understand as well and i think you guys have covered this is that um the intelligence agencies knew about these guys and there was lots of documentation of them and you know, they knew that something was going to happen. And then when something happened, then they were like, oh, well, you know, I guess we have to go invade Iraq and set the Middle East on fire. Um, and these this these documents that were just leaked are, as you guys kind of said, more a little bit more of a link in this chain that's building the full thing. Yeah. A Adam, speak a little to that. Um, you can go a lot of different directions with it, but uh, pick, pick that up, Adam. Could you repeat that question again? So basically, like, w with the two people on Flight 77, these documents had kind of tied them a little bit closer between the intelligence agencies and the Saudi Arabian government, correct? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Okay. Um, I, would, I would even go so further as you can tie at least two domestic agencies in suppressing information, and the one agency hardly anyone talks about is the NSA. The NSA is the one agency that has the most information regarding all of the hijackers and their associates because they had two monitoring um, operations uh, that were working simultaneously one another. 
One was a, a phone a phone tap of Bin Laden's satellite phone. It's disputed when this started. Uh, according to some CIA officials, it started in '92. Um, but what we do know is that they uh, they knew of a number in '96 that was tracked to an Al Qaeda uh, communications hub in Yemen, and this is actually a house that was uh, re resided by one of the hijackers, Khalid Al Midar. And the NSA began monitoring that number as well. So they had two open lines. But bin Laden got rid of the satellite phone in 98 after the embassy bombings. And what happened was this phone line in Yemen became the most surveilled house in the world because the NSA told the CIA about it and the FBI because the NSA doesn't do human intelligence. They only do signals intelligence. So they would listen to phone calls. But the CIA put a bug inside the house. And they only listened to the phone calls that were going outgoing. And they asked the NSA, you know, can we get the other half of the transcript? They said no. So basically, they were monitoring this house five years before 9-11. And they knew that there was a person named Khalid who was working, who was uh, living at this house because he was married to the daughter of the owner of the house. And basically, this information was kept from the FBI and the State Department all the way until after 9-11. I mean, it was just... Uh, stunning because the CIA knew these two guys, Khalid Amidar and Wapahavi, had links to um, uh, Chechnya, as Sean said. It was, they were served in the Chechnya war. In fact, their military commander was Ibn Khattab. And Ibn Khattab is, is an associate of Bin Laden for many years. Can and I stop? Uh, can I ask you a question here? So um, the, the FBI had information or i'm sorry the cia or the fbi whichever uh intelligence agency i'm just cia and to... nsa okay i'm sorry so the nsa had all the information on these two individuals but they purposefully kept it from the other one that's yeah okay now that's okay i already I well let, let me add to that the, okay, the, NSA, sure. the only reason why the cia knew is because mm -hmm. they had a cia analyst working with the nsa regarding uh, the monitoring system. So they they basically, uh, the, the CIA basically knew, but the NSA told them about mm. these two individuals because in the hopes of gaining photographs to the faces mm. that they were listening to. And this was, they had all this information prior to 9-11, correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Five okay. Five so um, I guess real quick, let's put a little pin here. Um, Sean, go ahead. I, I'm, what do you think the motivation was? And then Adam, I'm curious your thoughts on that as well. For uh, the motivation the information. for withholding information, mm -hmm. um, I'm going to be conservative and I'm going to say that uh, the intelligence services uh, are very proud um, and they think that they're in control because they probably are for for a large part. They probably are in control of the things that they're doing. And I'm going to I'm going to just give everybody the benefit of the doubt that they thought that they had everything under control and that this Frankenstein's monster was all under wraps and it was going to be okay because as what is what they're saying is that, well, what they want is uh, a mole in Al Qaeda mm -hmm. before 9-11. They want to have somebody on the inside. And I don't doubt that. Why wouldn't they? And so basically having a, hey, hands off of these basically red flagged terrorists in Midar and Hazmi who are like, they have, they have links to the USS coal bombing in Yemen, like known terrorists who are basically 
uh, hands-off characters that if what they want to do is flip these guys, okay, they thought they had the Frankenstein's monster under control. And maybe they could have gotten to that type of attitude over years mm -hmm. because they'd been dealing with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan for a decade back in uh, the 70s and 80s. So maybe they thought it was okay. I think it's way worse than that, but to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, probably it's at least okay to suggest that the intelligence services thought they knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. But there's an implication with that too. Mm -hmm. Did they know what they were doing and what were they doing? That's a whole other topic. Right. So basically the question would be, did they know what they were doing in terms of, we know we're withholding this information and this is our end goal? Or did they say, hey, we know what we're doing. This is under control. Don't worry about it. That's kind of the, the question that you're asking. Well, a lot of stuff was just ready to go as soon as they had the <laughs> pretext. So that's why it gets a little disturbing and there's a lot to say about that. Sure. Okay, Adam, so what's your thoughts on their motivation? And I made sure I put a note here because I know you were kind of outlining the link between the intelligence and then the documents. So what do you think the motivation was for withholding information? Do you kind of agree with Sean's analysis or, uh, you know, um, like I said, just curious your thoughts? I'm going to be a coward and follow Sean's uh, <laughs> link here, but I'm going to be a little bit daring okay. um, as well. So yeah, I think the general safe some uh, the safe position here is that yes, because in 1999, Kofor Black, who was actually given the head of the Counterterrorism Center by George Tenet, uh, George Tenet taxed him to get uh, more involved with infiltrating Al Qaeda because they had no uh, inside moles or inside information regarding this very mysterious nefarious organization that was operating in Afghanistan. So what happened was, was that for years, the CIA and NSA were obtaining as much information as possible, with the NSA being the gold standard regarding actual information about what was talking about on those phones. They were basically, they knew about these two guys that were in a Malaysia summit meeting of Al-Qaeda operatives, high level uh, meeting that was known to the NSA because they heard about it on the phone in December of 99. They told the CIA and they told the FBI about it, which is the only time where the NSA actually shared information. Mm -hmm. So the CIA told the Malaysian authorities, take pictures of this meeting, take pictures of the people coming in and out. And they did. And it was given to the CIA at the Counterterrorism Center and uh, this uh, analytical station called Bin Laden Issue Station, which is codenamed Alex Station, named after the son of the chief of state, Michael Scheuer. And this information was uh, a photograph of Khalid Amidar, Nawaf Ahadvi, and someone by the name of Khalad, who was uh, the, the name used on the phone. And his name is actually Taufik Benatash, and he's the alleged mastermind of the Kolban. So here you have a bunch of people in other, you know, high level Al Qaeda. Uh, Khalid uh, Sheikh Mohammed was at this meeting, Ramzi bin Al Sheib, uh, Fahad Al Puso, and later on, Zachary Musawi, who is the alleged 20th hijacker. And there's a lot more. Where do we know Samudin, who actually goes by the Nam de Gore Hambali from the group uh, Jemaah Islamiyah in Indonesia? There's a lot of high level terrorists at this meeting, and the CIA and NSA and, and Malaysian authorities knew about it. So did the FBI. But where the disassociation comes is that um, 
they were coming to the United States, Khalid Abidardo Abbasmi. And the CIA took photographs of their passports because when they were in the hotel room, one story is they, they were staying in a hotel in Bangkok. They left Malaysia to go to Bangkok. And um, they left their room and the, FBI, the CIA broke in and took pictures of the uh, passports. But they had U.S. visas, dual U.S. visas. And this was shared to the counterterrorism center and the bin Laden issue station. The disconnect is this was not shared with the FBI. FBI was working in this analytical station, saw the draft, saw the, the information, ran to the computer. Doug Miller, who was an FBI uh, working uh, at the bin Laden issue station, FBI agent, and basically was drafting and saying, as soon as they come to the United States, the FBI has to monitor right away because they knew about these guys' pasts and knew what they were involved with. CIA, under the deputy chief of station, Tom Wilshire, basically told his analyst, Michelle Ann Casey, to basically uh, say on the, the draft, please hold off sending this information. So for days, this information was sent. In fact, another FBI agent, who I've interviewed, Mark Rossini, basically went to complain and said, why isn't this information being shared? It's you know, it's, they're coming to the United States. It's FBI jurisdiction. And Michelle Ann Casey told him, it's not an FBI matter. We think the next attack is in Southeast Asia. We want, if we want the FBI to know, we'll let them know. Meanwhile, Marcus is telling them they're coming to the United States. This is an FBI matter. It's not a CIA matter. What, now, what does this all mean? The CIA would tell this information in the hopes of because of the illegal operation that was happening inside the United States involving the Saudi government to obtain as much information as possible from these two men in the hopes of maybe one day having them work on behalf of the Saudi government, which is basically the Saudi government and CIA, and then collect as much information on al-Qaeda as they can. But the thing was, as Sean pointed out, was that they trusted the Frankenstein monster. Now, what's missing? That's where I'm going to be a little bit daring. Specifics. Did they know about the plane's operation? Well, I would say um, right now that's unproven. But if you're going to blame any agency about specifics, blame it on the NSA. Blame it on the Israeli uh, intelligence services who are operating under the guise of art student rings and under the guise of the moving front companies throughout the north, uh, the southwest and northeast, because that's who are monitoring the members of the Hamburg cell, which is the other side of the planes operation, those guys that were basically hijacking the planes and piloting them. Khalid Al-Midar and Wapahadmi were selected as pilots, but they basically couldn't speak English. They failed the English classes and they were replaced by Hani Hanjo later on. But the CIA and the FBI and the CIA and the Saudis were out West, the Israelis in the East. So who would know about this operation, the planes operation? Because somehow it had to be talked about. Well, the NSA would. Because if they were talking about that on the phones, and we don't know what was said on the phones because that information is classified. And the NSA is the only one who has it, right? Right. Now, the Israelis themselves were living close by to the Hamburg cell, the pilot hijackers. They would know. The muscle hijackers were not told at this point. That's what I'm saying. Muscle hijackers came later, mm -hmm. but they weren't told about the operation until days before, or like a week before the attacks. Some of them knew, but most of them didn't. But the pod hijackers would know because that's what they were selected for. And who was following them? The Israelis. So you have the Saudis, the Israelis, the NSA, and the CIA I'll keep on the side for now because we can't prove that they knew about specifics. But if I want to be daring, 
I would say those intelligence services would know because they were listening to the phone calls and they were living right nearby the hi the pod hijackers who would know about the operation firsthand. And the CIA, I I can't say that they know, so I'll go with Sean on that one. I would say mm -hmm. that they, if, if anyone knew, it would probably be either George Tennant or the director of operations, James Pavitt, or even Kofor Black, the, the counterterrorism director. But I would I would say that very, very few people knew about the specifics at all. Okay, so now one thing that kind of came up for me right there, um, a lot of people want to point to Israel and, you know, a, a certain demographic of people and say this is all them because this kind of fits their narrative, which is understandable because that government does do a lot of bad things and then is very, very heavily intertwined with our own government. Um it kind of sounded like there's a tie between Israeli intelligence and the NSA because, um, you know, the dancing Israelis and then the uh, moving companies over on the East Coast. Um, so suffice it to say, was there significant connection between the NSA and, um, you know, Israel? I, that's a leap. Okay. Uh, there was no direct evidence showing that the they, that the NSA and the Israeli uh, intelligence services were working on the pre-intelligence operation 9-11. There's no okay. evidence to suggest that the Israelis were working with anybody in the American government at all. Um, mm. Could that have been secret? Um, yeah, sure. The Israelis themselves could be running a separate operation, which coincided with the intelligence services. But there is no direct evidence to show uh... that they were working you know, directly under any domestic service in the United States. But you could, and once again, I'm not saying that there's evidence for this, but um, through the dancing Israelis and then the different moving companies, couldn't that kind of suggest a motive or am I off base here? If I'm, if I'm wrong, then please correct me. No, it, motive itself was to collect intelligence about what was going to happen. Now, how would they know that unless they had a bowl inside Al Qaeda, which I speculate uh, that involves the Ajara, right? Okay. His family is involved with Israeli intelligence, but I can't prove it. Sure. Because uh, the Ajara is allegedly dead, right? And we don't we don't have anybody that can confirm that the Ajara was actually an Israeli mole, and other than, you know, the, the phone calls made from Flight 93 that said there were only three hijackers mm -hmm. and not four, as stated by the FBI and the federal government. Um, but that's all speculation, right? But mm -hmm. if you wanted a mole inside Al-Qaeda, the Israelis may have had that and if that's being if that's being related to the Israeli uh, intelligence services, well, that's the reason why they were running those separate operations to make sure that this operation is successful because it actually benefits Israel when the United States gets involved. It destroyed, you know, the preconceived enemies of Israel. Now we're talking about foreign policy guidelines and that mm -hmm. predate nine eleven and which which benefits each government. But like I said, there's no direct evidence for any of this. So. Mm, okay yeah the 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 thing that kind of comes to mind is just once again israel would want domination over the middle east and it benefits them for the u.s to be at war with iraq so um yeah. you know obviously the motivation between seeing you know the once again the moving trucks and the dancing israelis and then the overall outcome being beneficial to israel in my mind that kind of forms a full circle but as you said there's no evidence to necessarily put a uh you yeah. know nice bow tie on that uh sean do you have anything to add or um and adam if i'm like i said if i'm off base then correct me well, that's a great question 
it's, t- it's tough to answer it uh, because as Adam points out, the information isn't there. Yeah. So well, what we can show is that the Americans and the Saudis were working in some form of coordination. Mm-hmm. There isn't anything in the files that suggests that there's that kind of case with the Americans and the Israelis. Mm. There's just nothing. Okay. So take from that what you will, the entire absence of it. Maybe there's something to the fact that there is nothing. Maybe there's mm-hmm. something to that, mm-hmm. but you can't say for certain. Um, but talking about foreign policy and all that stuff, you know, that's a, that's relevant. All of that it's a bit of a can of worms. Yeah. Okay. So, um, now what was, what were some of like the most egregious violations that you guys were kind of seeing? Because I know Adam, you made a video on Mindy Robinson. Um, <laughs> Sean, I see you grinning. So maybe I should throw it off to you first. What were like some of the most ridiculous takes that you've seen on this? Because um, I know I have some followers that I said, just want to point the finger right at Israel right away and say that, you know, that they're entirely responsible for this. But um, yeah, I think that was part of what Mindy had said. So uh, Sean, I guess go ahead first. And then uh, Adam, you can kind of tag on anything else you might've seen. Well, you know, as we've already basically said here today, 9-11 is a huge topic. And uh, it spider webs out in many directions. Um, Regarding what we're seeing this month, it it mostly pertains to Flight 77, the Pentagon attack, um, to a degree, uh, Southeast Asia, and uh, to a degree as well, the attack in Yemen on the USS Cole. And it pertains to uh, Saudi intelligence services, and also, um, there's there's a factor sort of uh, nested in with the Saudi intelligence services, which is uh, the religious aspect. It they're almost intertwined. It, it's a really interesting thing to sort out. Um, we probably won't be able to uh, come to a, a, a great revelation on that today. But you, what you're dealing with when you're talking about Saudi Arabia is like. It's two or three things at once because you've got a monarchy, it's theocratic, and you've also got spooks, intelligence services, and the GID. So there's like these factors which are intertwined. But if if you're going to try to bring something like the Israelis into it, well, with Midar and Hazmi and uh, the operations on the West Coast, like it's not really there. And with, with the Israelis, it's all on the East Coast. And I mean, if you're talking about uh, funding out east, then you're bringing it back to KSM again, because uh, KSM's nephew was sending money, or he actually had a couple of nephews. One of them bombed the World Trade Center in 1993, and uh, another one, uh, Amar Al Baluchi, I think his name is, uh, sent money to uh, 9/11 hijackers. And uh, so that's East Coast stuff. That's the moving companies, like like you point out. Um, there's a lot that I can say about the moving companies, but none of that's in the Canisterero Declaration. It's all uh, it's all pertaining to really what's going on out west. But there's uh, so many glaring, like disturbing things. That's why I keep saying is this 22 pages. This is bigger than the 28 pages. It's stacked. There's like a hundred disturbing line items in this file. Um, Something that I could just throw out real quick, though, is uh, related to that uh, Malaysia summit. 
that uh, you know the CIA and NSA were observing this high-level uh, Al Qaeda meeting in Malaysia, um, Kuala Lumpur, I think, uh, where they're watching, they're listening, and we don't know all the details about what was said, but we know who was there. A lot of them who was there, and that's in early 2000 is it adam this meeting so something that's kind of interesting to take into consideration because this is all like going through the 28 pages going through operation encore and, and this month uh, declaration of donald c canastrero uh i believe it's in the encore files mm. there's a december 99 phone call from malaysia to fahad al-tumari at the King Fahd Mosque about two brothers. I, th I think that's probably in uh, the Islamic sense, not in the paternal sense. Um, two brothers who will be arriving in the United States. That's before this yeah. high-level meeting. And uh, I believe that's from an FBI confidential source. But the reason that this little nugget stood out to me was, well, December 1999, that's that's the millennium plot. That's when there was going to be a great big attack. It fell through because the millennium bomber Ahmed Rassam was apprehended. But that could have been a September 11th at uh, you know, Y2K, basically, if anybody's old and they remember that. Um, Dumeri had phone contacts with Ahmed Rassam. But, but he's supposed to be associated with uh, armed Islamic group in Algeria. So there's this weird thing about December 1999, through Mary phone call from Malaysia. Uh, the Millennium Bomber's got his phone number. And Ahmed Rassam uh, intended to cross into the United States from Canada in December 1999 and bomb LAX airport as part of a Millennium Transnational Terror Plot. Uh, which would have been enacted uh, during the, the year 2000 millennium celebrations. And uh, that's very curious because Rassam trained at an Al-Qaeda camp, but he's, he's not a bin Laden guy. Bin Laden didn't handpick him to do it. And so that opens up a whole other uh, web of things. So I, th I think we got on this topic because of uh, Israelis, but somehow I'm talking about Canadians. So anyway, uh, <laughs> those are my thoughts on that. There's so much more I've got yeah. things that we could kick around. I'm sure Adam's got some things he wants to kick around as well. Yeah, real quick before uh, Adam goes, that's that's absolutely fascinating because um, I've never heard anybody really talk about the Y2K stuff. I just remember seeing like an episode of Family Guy where they were joking like the world's ending. And, or no, it might have been Futurama <laughs> where all, all the uh, computers are going to shut off because they're not yeah. able to process all the zeros or something like that. But I didn't... And yeah, bombs. That, yeah. <laughs> but that was... Uh, Around the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's fascinating because that does all, like you said, open up a whole new window of possibilities especially when there seem to be foreknowledge of two people coming to make an attack um you know way prior to 9-11 but there was also you know kind of something being kicked around about attacks on y2k in particular at the la airport so just think uh, about how the christian evangelicals here in the united states would have responded to that oh we would have been whipped up into a great big frenzy mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So sorry, Adam. <laughs> um, unfortunately, you know, when you get right wing zealots like Mindy Robinson and others talking about, um, you know, this latest, you know, remarkable information Canistrero has uncovered. Um, you have preconceived biases and want to blame certain people or certain governments in certain countries because that fits your worldview. And that's not my main concern and something that I try to um, rectify to my viewership is that you have to look at any event in history with a clean slate. You can't allow your preconceived biases to get in the way of information that may be contradictory to those worldviews because then you're not an investigator you're actually a hobbyist, right? So mm -hmm. Mindy Robinson actually the other day uh, posted uh, a tweet about blaming Israel for 9-11 and somehow this information was uh, was was uh, revealing that the, the federal government knew about the attacks and so did Israelis. None of that's in the Canistrero document uh, that she, she probably has not read. She probably glanced at it. And um, not to mention, she's the girlfriend of a guy that I actually really like. And it's the former UFC light heavyweight, heavyweight champion, Randy Couture. And I'm like, oh, great. You know, you know I really like Randy Couture. But I feel bad because here's, she, here's this woman who's basically got a, you know, decent sized following. And she's posting disinformation regarding the most revealing document that I've ever come across. Um, and not only that, she's not alone. You, you got, you know, people like, I hate to say it, but Jason Burmes is another one. He did a video on the Canistrero document and basically um, was talking about it. Now, the thing about Jason Burmes is that there's a lot of things that he said that were actually correct and right. And um, But, you know, here's somebody who basically believes that the planes were actually swapped for drones and, you know, just crashed in World Trade Center, Pentagon, Shanksville. In fact, the drones were outfitted with missiles. And I'm like, you know, why would you need a missile? Plane's a missile at this point, going 500 miles an hour filled with, you know, 40,000 gallons of fuel. You don't need a missile, you know, just mm -hmm. it'll explode into the tower, you know. But he, when, when you mix, my point being is that when you have these people that basically want to give attention to a, a, a great revelation involving 9-11, and then you want to propagate these irrational, very insidiary theories, you're basically doing a disservice to the public, right? Because mm -hmm. the public is basically not going to read the document because people really don't read anymore generally. It's unfortunate. And it's 22 pages only, but it's very condensed, packed full of information that you have to, you know, make sure that the information's right. Who is this and what's this? And basically what they'll do is they'll go by these people and just say, oh, yeah, it talks about Israel. It talks about, you know, swap theories of planes. And it talks about none of this. So that's why I'm very anal and people think I'm being very um, aggressive and rude, but I, 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 that's the opposite. The, what I'm trying to do is basically provide information without any type of influential biases behind it. Just give you straight facts and that's it. Um, but when you have people with bigger channels than me, much bigger, and they're you know, doing such a disservice, not just to me, you know, I don't care. You know, I, I know better. But when you have a public that don't know any better about 9-11 or just comes across information, they're going to believe these people because they, hey, listen, you know, I follow this person because I generally think this person's a, you know, reputable source of information when they 
basically might be in certain respects, but in other respects, they're not. I am stoked to tell you guys about the show's new sponsor. I am now working with MTS Nutrition, which is a brand that I've believed in for a very long time, and they run awesome cells and they have awesome products. So um, I want to tell you about their amazing protein powder, which you're going to ask me how many pounds I have of the protein powder, and the answer is all of them. So here I got red velvet cake, 25 grams of protein, and they have the amino acids and everything on there, 59 servings. Peanut butter fluff, uh, fluffernutter, 26 grams of protein, and then also the chocolate chip cookie, which literally has real pieces of chocolate chip cookie in there. So 27 grams of protein, 180. As I've talked about on the show, getting your protein is very, very important. So make sure you hit that link below and purchase your protein powder through MTS Nutrition. Boom! When it comes to 9-11, it's unfortunate that it's saturated with these French dairies that basically hurt you know, really big information. I think Sean brought it up earlier. You know, you have a conspiracy at your disposal. You don't need, a, you know, these fringe theories to give it a bigger conspiracy. Uh, the irony is that, you know, these these fringe theorists of the truth movement, you know, talk about this conspiracy involving government and, uh, you know, the intelligence services. Meanwhile, they're covering up a much bigger conspiracy than they could even imagine by hiding or blanketing the actual facts and the information with fringe theories. Yeah, um one thing that I've always just lost my shit over was um when people say a certain treatment is population control and they start pointing to excess death over the last couple of years um and they just look at that I'm like well then you have now forgiven all the lockdowns and everything that happened over the last 3 years mm-hmm. because now you're ignoring all that and just pointing to this. And like I would hold these fuckers to account for what they did in 2020 and 2021. Mm-hmm. And telling all these people that they can't go to work and what that does to people. And I mean, I was going through paper after paper, going through websites to find statistics on unemployment deaths over the course of six years. And then, you know, miss cancer screenings and all this kind of stuff. When you just say, oh, the treatment is population control. Then once again, now all that shit goes out the window because now you just have a, you know, a ridiculous theory that you want to push. And yeah, it's clicks and yeah, everybody looks and agrees with you. But, you know, you're, it's like you're pissing up a rope while I'm trying to climb up that rope. <laughs> I, I can't do anything here. You're, my hands are fucking sliding because you won't stop, you know, tarring the fucking baby. You, you, you've made it now a mess that now anybody who disagrees now looks like an idiot. Thanks to all these people who just want to get clicks and want to get attention. Um, it, it's it's kind of what I I think I replied to a thread that both you guys were on calling uh Mindy Robinson at one point she was just a uh, thirst trap for MAGA people and now she's a, a libertarian engagement broker and this is essentially what people do they'll have like just plain takes that don't give you anything and just get your attention and clicks and you get a like and a retweet and then move on but you don't get anything out of it but though people like us who want to provide good information and yeah sometimes I throw out you know ridiculous shit there just to talk shit but like it's so funny if I go after somebody thousands of views but if i give you a thorough breakdown of information or try to provide you something that's going to help you then nobody looks nobody cares so it kind of goes to what you guys were saying about jason burmas if you say oh look no planes there or a missile hit the pentagon then people are like oh my god really and then now you know they're going to go to his channel and they're going to give him all the super chats but though the people who are saying like, hey, this is the breakdown of this document, this is the information without any hyperbole, then people are just like, okay, whatever, you know, where, where's my, uh, 
you know, I, w- I want to go see somebody fucking a donkey or something. I gotta, I don't care about this boring, dry shit. Uh, it's it's just awful. I I can't stand you know this too long didn't read generation. It's idiocracy. Oh yeah. my balls. Yeah, it's my problem. My problem is I'm very dry. Um, you know, uh, one person actually called me years ago, the Robert Smith of nine eleven, because I'm so depressing and and uh, <laughs> and just. You know, just downtrodden, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm only providing information, evidence that people could use, and that's the only thing that matters to me. You know, if I speculate, I, I'll I'll say it. I'm speculating. Mm-hmm. Jason Burmis actually said in that video that you know, if I say I'm speculating, I usually say it. But then, you know, in the same video, he's speculating, but doesn't say he's speculating. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it hurts. But the good thing, like, I don't, I, I criticize his points. But the good thing is he's talking about it. And this might bring attention to, you know, the public saying, well, what's this document about? So that's that's the plus side of this. So. Yeah. But yeah, but can he simplify it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, There's that uh, saying, and I think it's actually pretty useful, that uh, if you can't break it down in a simple way, then you probably don't know well enough. And I, that's completely butchering the quote. But uh, yeah, like if, if I couldn't explain to you something on your car – then you know that's a fault on me because as a dude who's been fixing cars for 10 years that i should be able to boil this shit down basically and simply enough that anybody can easily understand it and digest it um and that's kind of also the other problem that i think sometimes we may have on our side is that um i I see people do this where they just go information overload and i don't necessarily think we do this but like there will be people who just dump studies and sources on top of people. And it's like, well, they're not going to fucking read that anyways. So like you need to find a way to give them the steak and sizzle, but you can't, you got to find that happy medium of steak and sizzle, not all sizzle, no steak or all steak, no sizzle. <laughs> my, my problem is that I, I'm guilty of this sometimes. Uh, like I'll just talk about a, a specific point about 9-11 and just go, you know, completely an hour into it. And then lose people. I, I'm guilty of this, but now I've learned to basically condense uh, that point. And, and I like I don't do hour long videos anymore. I do maybe seven minute videos mm-hmm. with visuals and whatnot. Even though I still use Movie Maker, yes, I'm old. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I I try to condense a certain. But Night Limit is is so it's so expansive. It's so com- you know, complex. But you don't need to look at it that way. I mean, I do. Um, but you know, you can get a general sense. Of what took place before 9 11. You don't have to know what happened after 9 11. You know what happened. You're living it. But before 9 11 is the history that is, as Sean said before, incomplete and has not been, uh, has been saturated by, you know, French dairies that uh, basically blanket, you know, the cover up involved with uh, the intelligence services and the federal government and foreign governments as well. Yeah. So, uh, Sean, was there anything else there in those documents? I know you mentioned a phone call about two brothers. Um, was there anything else in there that you found particularly interesting? And then, um, Adam, I'm curious your thoughts as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And g- give Adam the chance and I'm sure he'll let it rip. Um, it's stacked. <laughs> um, I mean, like the Canistrero documents, uh, also further confirms that, uh, uh, to Mary had been lying. You know, uh, I, I believe the quote that's included in the file is that Alpha Mary was less than 100% forthcoming during his questioning at the commission. Um, hey, okay, here, here's one that that's uh, it's, it's, it's a bomb for you. Uh, Philip Zelikow limited the number of witnesses to the commission. 
specifically mm. pertaining to the Saudis. So like that's in the commission days. So talk about an incomplete picture when, when the guy in charge of the whole commission is going to limit information. Now that's really egregious and weird. And I, I'd love to hear people try to explain that away because that's just um, shameful. Uh, can we say that it's criminal? It's horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also uh, Bayumi was under investigation by FBI even before the 9-11 attacks and Zelikow fired a commission staff member for trying to obtain an index of the joint inquiry report. So like, there's like, there's all these weird things that we never probably would have guessed. I don't think we would have even imagined these weird situations that are now in the Donald C. Canestrero declaration. And I mean, I, I guess uh, it's worse than I thought, basically. Yeah. Uh, see, seeing this newest information, it's worse than I thought. <laughs> there's there's so much stuff. Here's uh, here, here's more stuff uh, from the Canistria report. Uh, uh, Osama bin Laden station member was blocked by order of the deputy head of the Alex station, Tom Wilshire, from sending a central intelligence report outlining the possible presence of Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi in the United States. Wilshire was at the time working with the FBI on the USS Cole investigation. Mm-hmm which would pertain to Midar and to a degree Hazmi. The same uh, station member blocked by Wilshire would also be told by CIA officials at uh, UBL station not to cooperate fully with the congressional investigations. And consider also when Mark Rossini of FBI was interviewed by Inspector General, CIA officials were present making sure Rossini didn't say the wrong things. The UBL station member uh, would also recall, <laughs> this is nuts, would also recall overhearing CIA director George Tennant. Um, oh, excuse me, uh, would, would, over, would overhear, I have it written down here. The staff member would overhear CIA director of operations, sorry, James Pavitt telling CIA chief George Tenet that he was glad they kept Michelle Ann Casey hidden from the commission officials and that Tenet agreed that this was a good idea. The staffer stated that this indicated that the two CIA officials had conspired to obstruct the 9-11 commission. I'm flabbergasted. Yeah, it's just like the more and more (laughs) I learn... (laughs) The more and more, it, it just looks like there was so much ego and malfeasance at play where there were literally people obstructing each other from every single freaking direction at every single opportunity. I mean, it's it's so fascinating to think that the events of one day just go off in millions of directions. I mean, like it it's hard for me to fathom all this. And I, I told Adam, and I, I think you might've caught a little bit of the tail end of this, like all day today and yesterday, I've been listening to like you guys talk about this stuff and it's just like, oh, there's so much there. So um, anyways, uh, I, Sean went on there for a little bit. Uh, Adam, your thoughts and anything that you really took away from the uh, Canestrero documents. 
Yeah, in fact, I'm glad Sean brought up the after effects of the attacks because there was another point of contention in the Canastrero files that comes from a confidential source, uh, CS8, where it basically talks about the CIA being uh, tasked to the uh, counterterrorism center in San Diego. And basically, this CIA liaison officer was actually spying on the FBI to see what they knew about Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar and the links to the Saudi government. Because remember, Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar actually landed at LAX, but then moved to San Diego, where they were met by Omar al-Bayoumi and Fahad al-Tamari, I mean, Omar al-Bayoumi and um, Amwar al-Awlaki, who was an imam at a mosque that they attended. Um, Fahad al-Tamari and Osama Bastan were in Los Angeles. And then they got them to move to San Diego, which basically was set up by Omar Abiyumi's payments and stuff like that. CIA wanted to know what the FBI knew at that point, because the FBI was conducting the investigation, which was called Pent Bomb, as Sean brought up before. And through their investigation, uh, San Diego, other, other than New York, was the major hub for the FBI regarding intelligence uh, because of the two hijackers that were living there. So the CIA was basically spying on the FBI in their investigation and relaying that information to the counterterrorism center in Langley. And this is actually unbeknownst to the FBI because they thought that the CIA was working with them, not against them. But as Sean brought up, this was not new because in the year 2001, the one man who told the FBI, not who told uh, the CIA analysts not to share, not for the FBI to share that information about Emlinar and our husband in the country, Tom Wilshire, went to work as a liaison with the FBI in their investigation of the coal bombing. And what was he doing there? Well, basically fishing. He wanted to know what the FBI knew, not about the coal bombing, but basically about Midar and Al-Hazmi's connections to Kalab, because if they can make that connection, this is no longer an intelligence matter for the FBI. It's now a criminal matter where they can get involved and arrest Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi for their connection to the coal bombing. But because that information was not shared with the FBI intentionally, might I add, this becomes, as you said, uh, Kyle, malfeasance and, as Sean said, maybe even criminal. Um, I'd like to know if there's a statute of limitations actually regarding it, but um, there probably is. Uh, but again, the CIA continues to this day actually to say that we never withheld information. They're still lying about it to this day. So... Um, Adam, I think you mentioned filing FOIA requests um, to get some of the information. Um, and the NSA would kind of be, and once again, cor correct me if I'm wrong here, but like if you were to get information from the NSA, that could kind of put a bow on a lot of this because they're the only ones that would have the metadata that could kind of explain some of the communications that were going on through some of the people that were here in some of their, um, you know, communications, let's say with the Saudis or, um, you know, different terrorists, right? Yeah. I, 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 a couple of years ago, um, I proposed a, an idea and the idea was how is it that everybody's filing FOIA requests regarding information about the hijackers and planes and whatnot, but what about the NSA? And what, what were they listening to these phone calls? I always said that, you know, we could make or break the case right here for 9-11. Because if I, I proposed a question to Thomas Drake, the former senior executive essay on Twitter. I said, Tom, is it possible that we could file a FOIA regarding the phone calls that were listened to by the NSA? And basically the NSA 
you know, heard every single phone call. If we go back to 92, but just say from 96, 96 to 2001, that's five years mm -hmm. of all the phone calls made in that Yemen hub and a communications hub worldwide for Al Qaeda. And not to mention Bin Laden satellite phones at the same time. I said, is it possible? And he said, it, it would be, and I, I, I'll try to do the best to quote. He said to me, I, I, I would be assured that it would probably be protected under a certain executive order. But all of that is classified because the trials haven't started, right? In Guantanamo, we're still waiting. Um, he also told me that, um, that it's a pipe dream, but you could try. He goes, nobody's ever done it before. And I said, yeah, that's right. Nobody's ever tried before. And I don't know, I'm not too experienced. I did it once regarding the flight manifest of Flight 23, the fifth plane to TMZ talked about now. Uh, a couple of years ago, I tried to get the FOIA, uh, tried to get the flight, but I'm not law enforcement. So they told me, no, I'm not allowed to get it because I'm the public servant. So basically what I'd like to do is maybe get somebody who's really experienced with FOIA requests, like a Jason Leopold, right? And basically talk to him about filing a FOIA request regarding what the NSA heard. And according to Thomas Drake, this is from him. Thomas Drake basically said that the NSA had so much metadata, emails, phone calls regarding those lines, that if it was shared, they could have stopped 9-11 altogether. They had all the flight uh, information regarding the hijackers, what times the planes were going to take off, you know, the, all the tickets, information, phone calls made by bin Laden, Dr. Ahmed al-Zuhiri, Mohammed Eita, I mean, God knows who else. All this information they had. And the NSA basically said that their excuse is that they didn't transcribe all the data through their program Trailblazer in time to stop the attacks. Well, regarding the analysts for the NSA working those lines, they didn't hear the phone calls or maybe they didn't speak Arabic or whatnot. I don't know, right? But let's just say that they were talking about the attacks on the on, on those phone calls. And that could have been stopped. Well, we could hold the NSA accountable. Hey, you know, we knew about the attacks, but we don't know it because we don't know what was said on those phones. What if what if Al Qaeda wasn't talking about the attacks at all? That they weren't behind it. That's a that's a stretch. Because we do know that they were behind it because they, you know, Ramsey Yusuf and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed before they were tortured, actually gave a, a confession video interview to uh an Al Jazeera reporter Yosri Fuda in before they were captured. Right. So at least we do know that they were, you know, partly involved with 9-11. But, you know, we can actually surmise who was involved, who wasn't involved and what time the attacks were known and whatnot. And why didn't they stop it? Why didn't they share it? And that's what we like. I like to file a FOIA request for that. But I know it's a pipe dream. Yeah. I know that information is classified and we'll never know because we'll know. <laughs> that's why. Right. So uh, I, I guess I'll throw this over to Sean and then uh, Adam, you can tag on after that. Um, what Would you have any hesitation in, in saying that the NSA is then directly guilty for allowing 9-11 to happen? Or would you be hesitant to say that because let's say maybe it was like just the bureaucracy of the NSA that would make them not – or that would – make it so that they would miss this crucial information because um, as Adam just said, they had enough information to stop 9-11, but um, maybe we could grant them the benefit of the doubt and say that, you know, they just didn't listen to it. They didn't process it. Um, in my mind, it, it sounds like 
these fuckers are guilty. They let this happen. But then, you know, there's also the less cynical part that could just be, once again, they they had a lot going on and maybe the individual at the time didn't, you know, put two and two together. What are your thoughts there, Sean? I think it's a heavy charge. Mm-hmm. That's a heavy charge. Yes. I, I would be I would be very hesitant to uh, assert that. Mm-hmm. Um, if 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 it came to the point where someone was going to make that accusation that they had to defend themselves, I think it'd be pretty easy for them to simply say we were overloaded. We had all this information and nobody to look at it. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be very easy to sort of skirt around it, and I think it'd be, without knowing exactly the information and being able to formulate a case around that. Mm-hmm. It was really deep into speculation territory about sure. whether we could whether we could make that hit a target and we would make that stick on anything. They could just say, "Oh yeah, it was it was analysis paralysis. We didn't know what to do because it was all this stuff, and plus none of us speak Arabic." And you know, it's like they could probably skirt around it. Mm-hmm. So I probably wouldn't make that charge, but I would like to know the information, mm-hmm. and I would like to know who had the information. Because just like with uh, Tenet effectively perjuring himself at the joint inquiry, talking about how nobody read the cable, when the cable was read, you could maybe then work with that if you knew who had the information, what was the information. But without knowing what they have, uh, I don't know, I can't make a case around it. So I'd be, I'd be very hesitant to make that charge, but okay. it wouldn't shock me. It wouldn't shock me. After seeing all this, how how creepy it all looks now, yeah. with, with some of these details falling into place, looks downright disturbing. So basically, it, I don't want to speak for you, but it kind of seems like these documents kind of, I don't want to say put the nail in the coffin, but they kind of rest the tip of the nail on the wood that's not driven in. Somebody's going to have to give somebody else up. Right. Okay. I, I think this is where you can you can really hold some fire to somebody's feet. So you could make somebody crack and maybe give somebody else up, and that's where foreign relations comes in. Okay. Because like yeah. we talk about East Coast, West Coast, you know, there's a whole there's a whole coast of the United States with intelligence services going on that Canistrero document doesn't even touch. If there's a document like the Canistrero document regarding the Pakistanis or the Israelis or something like that, like, oh now we're talking. Mm-hmm. But uh so somebody might crack on this because mm-hmm. they could they basically fell on the sword like tenant you know still tried to kind of lie and get away with it tenant lied like two or three times under oath mm-hmm. like you you could you could now that that's the end that's like the little the crack in the armor the camel's could, nose under you, the tent you, yeah. could, you could wedge that you could get somebody to give somebody else up maybe mm-hmm. make something of it it's really exciting all right uh so then adam the nsa being downright guilty do you kind of agree with sean's analysis and do you have anything to add yeah no um it would you would be well met to reserve that charge uh until better evidence comes out because at this point uh like sean said they can basically just fall in ignorance and just say yeah we 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 didn't read the information until afterwards uh because that's what they actually said in fact bill benny uh gave a, a talk many years ago uh, and I forgot what conference this was. It was actually a big conference, and he was invited. And he said that one of the uh, anal- the analysts working at the NSA regarding the phone lines uh, basically didn't read the information until much later, until after 9-11, where it was condensed. And Thomas Drake actually took that information to uh, Signals the Director Manager at the time, Maureen Baginski, 
and he he gave her the information regarding you know what they uh, collected at the, uh, the Yemen hub, and she said to him, "Tom, I wish you hadn't shown me this because by saying this now she can't feign you know plausible deniability. They knew the information, but now here's the thing: did they know it at the time, or did they know it afterwards? That's the only thing missing. So I, I like Sean says, I can't uh, blame them. Uh, okay, all right, so." Basically, yeah, so you couldn't get an indictment. You could basically say, hey, there's a lot of evidence. Well, I shouldn't even say a lot of evidence, but like, this is my case, but you wouldn't levy a charge because like you said, um, basically the timing of the information isn't there. Right. And remember this, the NSA is the agency that was barely investigated, even into two congressional investigations in fact it was barely a, i have the, both uh, uploaded on my youtube mm -hmm. um and you could you could see it for yourself they barely asked the director michael hayden a question okay okay so real quick i'm sorry to interrupt but yeah. um uh, i'm curious both you guys thoughts on this then um if the nsa was the least investigated do you think that's on purpose or do you think that's just because you know some other reason maybe they were worried about the fbi or the cia or, um, you know, just kind of, you know, I don't want to say a moral panic, but a panic about terrorism. Um, were your guys' thoughts, do you think that was on purpose or no? Oh, it was on purpose. In fact, uh, even Thomas Drake said that uh, the CIA was, Sean Brett brought this up before, that the CIA was willing to, you know, fall on the sword, so to speak. Um, in the book, uh, in uh, Michael Hayden, uh, his memoirs, I forgot, I forgot his uh, book that he wrote, and he talked about, um, when they were talking about the uh, cable that came in and, and Tennant says nobody read that cable. Well, in Hayden's book, basically, he says that Tennant goes down for his briefcase and says, I'm not going to give her up. And to give, meaning that the analyst who read that cable was Michelle Ann Casey, and she was the one who read the cable. And later on in Against All uh, Enemies, uh, which was written by uh, Richard Clark, the head of the National Security Council, uh, he basically says, the counterterrorism center, he basically says that um, uh, over 50 agents read that, that cable. So 50 agents from the CIA read that cable and withheld that information from not just the State Department, the FBI, but also from Richard Clark, the leader of the, the head of the NSA. And so there was this coordinated effort by the NSA and the CIA to withhold information and as well as the 9-11 congressional inquiries to not basically touch on this because it's, a, as Sean said, it's a matter of uh, uh, national security and foreign policy, which are, uh, you know, the essence of 9-11 of and why it happened. Mm -hmm. Sean? You know, it's interesting that you bring up uh, why it happened and uh, foreign policy. That just makes me think back to something regarding 9-11 truth and uh, conspiracy theories. You know, n nobody in the truth movement is understanding this conversation right now. If they're watching, they're not even they're not looking at this Canistrero information. And it's because they have this for whatever reason. What they've effectively arrived at, the conspiracy theorists, is that uh, Al Qaeda has no agency. Arabs don't have agency. There is no uh, there is no terror uh apparatus there's only security services and they fake everything and it removes interesting enough it removes the motivation for something like this to happen on the middle eastern side of things it's pretty clear why somebody like a bin laden 
somebody like uh, a Ramsey Yosef or his uncle KSM, why a terrorist would have done something like that in the first place? Because like, hey, don't get confused by the headlines. Look, we're not, they're not agents. Well, they might be assets. Don't get confused by the sensationalist headlines. The terrorists have agency and they do what they do for a reason. And it's the foreign policy. It's because of the United States' dealings in foreign affairs in the Middle East, particularly with uh, offending a religious attitude by basically staging a launch point of a military aggression in the Holy Land and an unwavering support for Israel. And so by removing figures like Al-Azmi and Al-Midar, not even understanding why something like that could have been concocted and and uh, and and mechanized in the first place. You've that's like the that's almost the biggest cover up of all. What's up, everybody? Um, we're going to take a quick break and tell you about the show's sponsors. Um, we are brought to you by Element T electrolytes. I've been using this stuff for years, and what I've honestly found is that if I didn't have electrolytes before some kind of cardio, and sometimes even before workouts, that my workout performance, or definitely cardio performance, would suffer greatly. Um, Sodium is responsible for every single movement, pretty much, in your entire body. And let's say you drink a lot of caffeine, like I like to do, then um, maybe it is a good idea, like I do every single morning, um, put some LMNT chocolate electrolytes um, there in your coffee to get a little bit more sodium, potassium, and uh, magnesium in your coffee so that way whatever diuretic effect you get from the caffeine is pretty much diluted by the fact that you put chocolate salt in it. Um, also it tastes really really good. Get some uh, chocolate creamer, hazelnut creamer, or even coconut and uh, mix that all up. It tastes really really good. So uh, yeah, make sure you drop by, go to drinklmnt.com slash health and uh, pick you up some electrolytes today. Alright guys, thanks. Is that... Nobody understands why Al-Qaeda would do that. Now, CIA probably understands why. They love handling assets. So with these new Canestrero documents and everything grim coming through on the American side, I mean, I was more on, on uh, putting blame on the Middle East until I see some of these line items. And now I'm like, oh, man. In a way, the conspiracy theorists were sort of right for the wrong reasons when they said <laughs> inside job, because mm -hmm. now it's looking really grim on the Americans. There's so much. Kyle, you got to read the files. It will blow your mind. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of items. We can't even go through them all today. Hundreds of items. Yeah, yeah, I got gotcha. you. Um, well, you know what? Um, I, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about music, and then we'll uh, we'll call our quits. So um, Real quick, do you guys have anything you kind of want to add to anything we discussed today, or do you just want to move on to uh, just shooting the shit for me about music for a few minutes? I had something I wanted to ask Adam. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, so looking at this new information, and and like again, this is like stacked on top of what we've seen with the encore files and stuff, right? So this is like years in the making. We're looking at this, and we always thought it looked pretty bad on like CIA and NSA. And we always kind of have been given FBI a pass. I wanted to ask you, Adam, if your opinion about FBI's part in this has changed somewhat after reviewing this new information. It has a little bit. 
and um, you're not you're not the first person to ask me that. Actually, Peter Lance once asked me that too. Uh, and that was a phone call a year prior because I was supposed to interview him uh, regarding the book, A Thousand Years for Revenge. And he basically says that, um, you know, have, have all the years that you've been at this, have, what has changed your mind? Because he's big critic of the FBI. Huge. He's the biggest critic of the FBI regarding pre-9-11. And I said, yes, because um, by reading your books and now with this Canistrero document coming out, my 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 thing was that um, I've been protective of the FBI up until this point. Now, there's FBI whistleblowers, right, before 9-11. But after 9-11 is when the FBI conducted the cover-up of the Saudi government. And so I can no longer say now with these latest revelations that the FBI was actually the innocent agency that I once previously thought. Um after 9-11, they're just as guilty as the CIA for helping to cover up uh, regarding any Saudi financing logistical support to the hijackers themselves, which would make them culpable of the malfeasance and, you know, other criminal activities that they were involved in regarding cover. Now, not to say that the entire FBI is involved. Certain FBI agents like Danny Gonzalez, you know, who led the charge at Operation Encore, uh, very few agents were involved with that not as opposed to the pen file investigation, which is the largest FBI investigation of all time in their agency's history. But very few people wanted to do a, a follow-up to what was revealed in pen file, for the exception of a few out of New York and San Diego, which was led by Danny Gonzalez. And good on him, because you know what they uncovered through Operation Encore was basically what was reiterated, but more in the Canistrero documents. And basically, it all confirmed that the FBI, after 9-11, helped to cover up on behalf, of course, pressure from the Bush White House and Obama White House as well, in regards to Saudi links to directly involving with Khalid Al-Madar and Wapahadi. So, yes, Sean, my, my opinion has changed about that. It's grim, right? I think that's an understatement. And I'm, you know, people know me as a pessimist, and I'm thinking the worst. But in this regard, I, I, this is a, a horror show. All right. So I, I guess, yeah, like, like I said, you guys have anything else you kind of want to add to that? Because I got one question then. Um, I, like I said, I don't think Adam and I have ever talked music. I know, Sean, you play as well. So I uh, said, any uh, final thoughts? No, I, my, my, I think my only parting thoughts here would be um, – when one it's only 22 pages but it's very condensed as sean said so be prepared for an overwhelming amount of you know information at your disposal uh you can always reach out to us sean and myself as well as nelson and darren and you know the kids uh ben and eric at project new american we'll try to do the best to assist you we're very open uh unlike in previous past where you know skeptics were very closed to the public we're much more open to the public because we want people to know about this information. But please look at it without any, you know, rose-colored glasses. You know, just look at it as information and wherever it leads to, it leads to. And if you want to blame Israel, you want to blame Muslims, or you want to blame just CIA, well, you know, you're only going to look at information that agrees with that worldview. So please look at it with, you know, a, a very unbiased lens. Sean? I think Adam hit it pretty succinctly. I'd, I'd concur with all that. 
Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, yeah, one more question before we move on from there. Uh, in an ideal world, um, in your speculation, going out on speculation, would you say the U.S. government is guilty or not guilty? And once again, this is just speculation from what you know. Uh, Adam, you can go first. Guilty of? Um, doing 9-11, essentially. W- oh, would you? no, 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 mm-hmm. not at all. There's no evidence to suggest that they orchestrated a plan 9-11. I've always agreed with Michael Collins, Piper, a controversial author, but I agree with this, mm-hmm. that the Arabs facilitated plan to plot but that the intelligence services, foreign and domestic, got wind of the plot before it happened and manipulated. That's exactly what I think happened. I, I um, that from what I've heard, every you know everything that I've heard, that seems to me like the most logical explanation, yeah. at least in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wouldn't. I would. I you know I know there's a lot of people in the truth movement that like to blame the CIA or the Israelis for 9/11. But no, I don't. I don't think they orchestrated or planned it. I do think that they knew about it and they manipulated it in order to be successful. Mm-hmm. Sean, I am like, I'm never the person that says inside job. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't think it's an inside job. Right. I, hey, I'm open to all the information. There's some information floating around out there that can really, you know, can twist your arm about certain things, which are some deep waters to wade in. Um, basically a blanket kind of explanation or statement like the government is guilty is too vague. Um, it's, uh, it could be misconstrued in a lot of ways. Uh, basically when we make sort of broad, um, conceptualizations like that, um, maybe you get a lot of people that agree with you because they in their own mind have some kind of interpretation of what you just said, but it means slightly different things to everybody. So I'm not an inside job guy. And I've even said in the past, if you're going to make a safe bet, what, what you have is they let it happen on purpose. Mm-hmm. You have the lie hop is the safe bet, not made it happen on purpose. Um, that's not a strong of a case. Um, what I could say is it, it really does look like somebody fumbled something. Mm-hmm. And then so it's almost a perfect storm, as you pointed out earlier, where mm-hmm. like there was a lot of key points that things went awry. That's where it, again, we're in speculation land. That's where you could sort of, you could sort of wonder like, was that like pinpoint accuracy? Like for how things fell? through these cracks like if somebody knows the system they're going to know the cracks and you could like you could maybe pachinko machine that thing down through the system and because you know it'll fall here it'll fall here it'll fall here we have plausible desirability here plausible deniability here we can we can uh get away with it like right if somebody was you know a grand orchestrator yeah but as i sort of alluded to earlier what that does though is it it does sort of rob uh a terrorist of their agency and Mm. it's just not concrete as far as the facts that are available and it's uh it's very grandiose that's it's a really big conspiracy and uh there's plenty of big big conspiracies that are out there some of them are outright science fiction so i wouldn't make the charge 
the literal charge of the government is guilty. I wouldn't make that charge. But what we could say, and like maybe like sort of tiptoeing close to uh, an extreme position, is they failed for whatever reason. Maybe it, did, it doesn't even necessarily have to be on purpose. It could have been accidental or incidental. There's failure and then cover their ass after the fact. And crisis capitalists take advantage of their own accord of the situation to sort of work with it and accomplish something because people are motivated in government. They always try to accomplish their goals. And so it's like there was failure. Nobody got spanked for it. People got promoted for their failures. Nobody got spanked for their failures. And what we can see now with the Canistrero information is they were covering it up. So what, what, what you could make a charge about is, all right, well, you guys were, uh, you guys were covering your ass. At least maybe, at least maybe somebody should get slapped for failing as hard as they did and then never taking any form of accountability and basically just skirting the issue and creating an, uh, a boogeyman in Iraq to give everybody something to get riled up about. Mm -hmm. Everybody breaks out their flags and, you know, Nobody thinks about, oh, well, did we just fail catastrophically? No, no time for failure. We're going to go win something now. Get with it. So that's it's my abstract answer to a sort of a loaded question. <laughs> oh, no, that's all right. So you could almost say negligent homicide that was covered up. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, that, that, yeah. That's even a little bit Because it's a, a bad situation yeah. that... Nobody took any accountability for it, and uh, at the end of the day, we we put uh, inappropriate blame on a uh, state actor that had nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, it's something that Adam brings up all the time. It was the aftermath of nine eleven that was far worse, right? Far worse than the day of. Yeah, a lot, lot of conversations to have about all of that. Yeah, and I know in this hour and a half, which like. I swear I blinked and it's gone. Um, we I, it feels like we just kind of scratched the surface, but um, we'll definitely have to do it again. But before we uh, click off of here, I, I know Adam's answer to uh, being a fan of heavy music. Uh, Sean, wh where do you put yourself in like the uh, music category? Because I know you have a, a guitar in your profile picture. <laughs> a lot of people will tell you, "Oh, I listen to everything." They're liars. I literally do listen mm -hmm. to everything. Um, lately. Uh, I've been listening to 1990s hip hop, uh, and uh, <laughs> that was not what I was expecting. <laughs> um, I listen to uh, classical stuff. I like traditional pieces done in uh, classical arrangements. Um, I like uh, punk rock. That's like my my favorite is, uh, and it's kind of a guilty pleasure. But I, I love punk rock. Um, I like uh, heavy music. Sure. Um, when, it, when it comes to heavy music, uh, I like, uh, I'm really particular. Um, I guess I like old school thrash, basically. If, I, if I'm going to listen to heavy music, I'm kind of a crabby old bastard. And I mostly just listen to old Slayer records and like Motorhead. <laughs> um I like uh shoot man I like I like weird music from around the world that's that's arranged in like uh intervals that sound completely gonzo to the American ear. I I like all sorts of stuff. I like stuff that makes me think. Mm -hmm. I guess that's something that I could point out is uh something that's going to 
make my brain activated. So I'm interested in, in like weird shit like uh, uh, freestyle jazz and things like that. Um, I've, uh, I've become more interested in electronic music uh, in more recent years. I guess I was sort of a, a supremacist or traditionalist or something for a lot of my life. And I only liked live instrumentation, but I've been listening more to uh, uh, electronic instrumentation these days. And then once in a while, I'll listen to pop music, too, just because I hate myself. <laughs> <laughs> that was, uh, I, I cannot say at all, that was the answer I was expecting. It, it, that that was way out of left field compared to what I, I, I had in mind. But um, I, I, I'm in this uh, group chat for libertarians that like heavy metal. And uh, I, I, I tell people this story about how amazing my wife is because um, we bought our tickets to go see Metallica and Pantera out in New Jersey. And like this was as soon as Pantera announced that they were running through the United States. I'm like, oh, my God, that's my favorite band. So obviously their guitar player, Dime, was killed on stage in 2004. So I would have been 10 years old at the time. So I never got to see Pantera. Now, Zach Wilde is my number two guitar player, Dimebag Daryl being number one. So um, like this is a huge deal for me. And I love the uh, rendition of Pantera that's going on. You know, I people poo-poo it. But like they're doing this for the love of, you know, Vinny and Daryl Abbott. So um, we bought our tickets. We got a hotel. Um, we're going to drive to um, New Jersey, which is like five hours away from here. And then they announced that they're coming to Pittsburgh. So I was like, oh, well, we could just cancel our tickets for, you know, cancel the hotel, cancel our tickets for out there. And we'll just go see Pantera in Pittsburgh. My wife texts me back and she says, why don't we just go to both? And I was like, mm. all right. <laughs> so, uh, Adam, are, are you going to go see uh, Pantera and uh, Metallica if they uh, come through New York? No. <sighs> can't do it oh my god i'm I, i'm old school so mm -hmm. i dime bag is not there and mm -hmm. neither is um what's it called the lead singer his name phil He's, yeah phil anselmo no i can't do it. it it will be uh phil and rex who are the original bass player and uh phil's not the original singer but i mean he was a singer for all of the uh, albums where they were right. bigger but uh charlie benanti from anthrax on drums and then zach wild on guitar which uh I, I didn't think charlie from anthrax would do Vinny justice but all the videos i've seen i was impressed really uh, who's yes. playing for metallica by the way who uh metallica right now yeah uh trigillo is their basis and then you know obviously lars kirk and uh james i've seen them twice over the last couple of years and um loved it every single time really and their new album is actually really good but I, I mean my bar for good is pretty damn low and much like sean i'm pretty much a fan of all kinds of music i'm actually going to a concert in june but it's not a talk of pantera it's actually the cure so uh they're coming into the, the, the country so i never seen the cure and i'm a big fan so huh. but uh, as for metallica once the, once cliff burton died that was it for me Purist, huh? I saw them uh, in the 90s with uh, Newstead on bass. Oh, really? It was great. It was great. Metallica is a great band. They're like, yeah, they they're are. They're a good lot. Um, I mean, one of my favorite songs of all time is still Fade to Black. So. Mm -hmm. And I saw Pantera in the 90s as well, which I'm like really grateful for, actually. I, too. <laughs> um, I, I cried. Uh, well, I may or may not have cried when <laughs> I heard the news about Dimebag. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I when I was a teenager, I would I would cry every single anniversary because that was my favorite guitar player in the world. Why? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm super excited to go see them. And uh, 
we also got our tickets for some like the Normie Rock, Breaking Benjamin, and all of them. Uh, I would really like to go see Sepultura. I think they're coming back through Sepultura. Soul oh, Sepultura, really? Yeah, yeah. Even with Derek, I, I I think their newer stuff, like their last three or four albums, have been absolutely fantastic. If you're into like, I haven't death, kept up with them at all. Yeah, I forgot about Sepultura. I used to listen to them in the '90s. Yeah, yeah. They're obviously all their '90s stuff and late '80s is really good. But like, um. Once they got Derek Green in, like the first, actually their first couple albums were pretty good, but like their newer stuff is more like death metal and groove, and I I think it's phenomenal. But um, those first couple albums of them weren't quite as heavy as some of the stuff is now. Like it's it's a lot more thrashier, but like real low tuned guitars, and then um, Derek also sings a little bit on their most recent record, uh, Quadra, I think it was called. But uh, the one before that, Machine Messiah, was fucking fantastic, too. I've almost entirely forgotten about metal music, actually, because I mostly just listen to, like, Haunting the Chapel, and, like, I forget that there's other bands out there. <laughs> but I guess I've I've always been uh, a Metallica fan, though. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I listen to the new album, and... Uh... Whenever, whenever Metallica is in the news, I'm I'm reading the article. I'm I'm listening. Uh, I f I forget what they're they put out their longest song ever on their newest record. Uh, yeah, God. it's the end track. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's got a weird name. It was in, in, in Marata. Yeah, I don't know, but like that. I, I listened to it. The um, my wife and I were coming home from going to dinner, and it came on. Um, you know, we listened to it like right before we got home, and I'm like, wow, that was actually like really good. And then, um. The one song that always sticks out in my mind off their um their second and most recent record was a uh, spit out the bone, which was like just yeah. Gnarly. That's another album finisher. Yeah, mm. I rather liked that double album. I thought yeah. it, I thought it had a little bit of filler in it, but uh, it had some great moments. I th uh, you know they've been doing it for forty years. These uh two most recent albums I think are uh, pretty good. Death Magnetic was eh, you know, and then they had Lulu, it just which... needed better uh, engineering. Like yeah. it's mixed all whack, right? Yeah, like cool Lulu, songwriting, but it's hard to listen to because of the fidelity issues. It's 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 mixed all whack. I yeah, I, Adam's not into it. I'm, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I mean, well, I'm old fashioned. So, like, like Sean, if I listen to metal, it's all like from the '80s, uh, '90s period. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, Adam. All right. So, Metallica released an album after Injustice for All. I just wanted to let you know, like, and then they continued to release albums, and they've been several of them. <laughs> I can't. I, I have not known any of them. <laughs> you know, after Injustice for All, I thought that was the end, really, mm -hmm. for Metallica. I wasn't a fan of Black and uh, other albums that came out after that. I haven't been really paying much attention. I think back to the new form of music that I've been paying attention to is something I don't think that you're into. Neither one, I'll, I'll dare say it. Shoegaze, I guess. Mm. <laughs> I've, I've, I understand it exists. I don't think I've heard yeah, yeah. I more melancholy I, and more slower and much more. See, I'm 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 also quite expansive in music taste, but like old like old forms of music that I I, I don't like the new forms are are hip hop and metal. Oh man, killing me! I I'm I'm a fan of all metal. Like particularly what I grew up on was probably like 2002 to 2007 metal of like the stuff that kind of came after pantera metallica and not that i don't like pantera metallica and all them pantera is mm -hmm. my number one favorite band but like 
kill switch engage trivium uh lamb of god god forbid shadows fall those kind of bands that was like what i grew up with and just always freaking love just because like the the raw energy that was coming out around then 2002 to 2007 was just unmatched for anything else at the time and then um you know sadly that all a lot of those bands kind of went by the wayside but some of them are still around like uh a band i really like now and you guys will probably hate me for saying this but bad wolves um the reason why i love them so much is because all the guys that were originally in the band and they changed singers for you know kind of dumb reasons but like all those guys in that band were playing in metal core bands from the early 2000s and they like never made it big and then they finally formed bad wolves and then they put out that cover of zombie which got beat to death but everything else that they did was fantastic um they finally blew up and it was like it was just good to see guys who you knew just grinded their asses off for 20 years finally make it big and you have all these assholes that say oh these guys are sell one hit wonders sell it's like you guys have no idea the history like all these guys played in bigger bands back in the early 2000s but just like could hardly put food on the table and now they're finally making it you guys shit on them Mm-mm. sorry <laughs> they were a metalcore band yeah bad wolves uh zombie. i didn't know that <laughs> wow you've never heard the cover of zombie that well was- no i've heard the cover i didn't i didn't know that they'd been basically a metalcore band though. well no no all, all the members sorry all the members of that band were in metalcore bands mm, in like 2002 okay. 2007 so like their drummer was from devil driver the guitar player was from god forbid tommy vex was from divine heresy westfield massacre and his own solo band uh the one dude played for bury your dead but like these were all bands that everybody knew that liked metal and metalcore from the early 2000s but they never blew up and then bad wolves was you know kind of members from all those bands that got together and then they blew up so it was like these guys got in a positive way what they deserve they busted their ass and then finally kind of broke it big but uh yeah so kind of go back to the 80s and uh, 90s stuff i know adam's a big fan of death and then like a morbid angel i think mm. morbid angel's coming through and i never got the chance to see him but uh one, one thing that always sticks with me um i played in this sludge metal band called wretched hive for a little bit and i remember uh where the slime lives came on in one of the bars that we were playing all all like all the people in my band were just like yeah <laughs> yeah in terms of like old bands yeah um i'm a fan of death <laughs> um oh, another another uh, one concert i went to death was playing with fear factory obituary oh. slayer and that was at the solid yeah, yeah that's the best concert i ever went to mm-hmm. and um i think uh obituary came out with um chopped in half in the album it was they were they were unbelievable it was so it was so good i think it was 1995 the year it was that was the best concert i went to but yeah i'm I'm old school i'm like sean i'm a grouch when it comes to newer music and stuff but i heard a lamb of god at least i heard one band that you're into and i heard they're very good and because slayer actually went on tour with them a couple Mm -hmm. of times so Yeah. yeah i don't know the other bands though yeah i saw um slayer on their farewell tour and that was pretty cool and lamb of god was in direct support um my first concert maybe we can close on this um yeah my first concert was guar lamb of god job for a oh cowboy and i was Whoa. yes i remember i was 15 years old and it was at uh the pittsburgh station square amphitheater which would it makes me feel even older when i realize that place doesn't exist anymore but i'll never forget the feeling of and this is like a big out it was like a parking lot almost with a fence and a stage and i remember just walking in there and 
feeling it in my chest and uh, short story my band opened for steel panther back in 2020 awesome yes (laughs) so uh the the one thing i'll never forget is being on stage doing a sound check and like it's one thing to be on the other side of the speakers feeling it in your chest and then it's another thing to stand on stage and when your drummer hits his snare you feel it like (laughs) that that's just so yeah i'll never forget my first concert 15 years old coming in and then seeing guar and their singer odorous sticking a sword in this giant robotic creature's chest and then babies falling out of it with a broken window and just ripping its (laughs) arms off and shooting blood everywhere oh i never forget it as long as i live so uh sean what was uh, your first concert that was a uh, Green Day on the Insomniac album <laughs> tour. Oh no shit! Uh, yeah, I actually really like that, that year. Yeah, um, it's their best album, Insomniac and Green Day. Yeah, Adam, Black Sabbath. Um, oh my god, Um I wasn't supposed to go. Actually, a friend of mine uh, who lived in Queens, Ridgewood, Queens at the time, actually had an extra ticket because someone of his group didn't uh, come. And um, he called me because I played on the basketball team. <laughs> wow. <Not low-key>. I'd say. <laughs> yeah. well, um, who, who else was with them? I know Pantera toured with them, but I don't think it was in 93. No. Um, Black Sabbath was um, touring with. Um, was it Blue Oyster uh, Cult? I don't know the name of the band. Was it, it was a band I know I, I wasn't a fan of. Mm-hmm. And I didn't. I didn't go. Uh, um, I don't. I don't remember the name. Hmm. Shit. No. <laughs> Damn. Well. It. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think that's a good place to uh, cut it off. Um, so I guess we can go ahead and do plugs. Sean, where can everybody find you, brother? Uh, find me on Twitter mostly. Um, I'm on YouTube. I'm on Odyssey. Um, really cool people can find me on VK. And uh, I even use Facebook once in a while, but uh, Facebook, you know, everybody knows Facebook sucks. Yeah, yeah, I'm out there. Cool. Uh, Adam, where did everybody find you? Yeah, you could just Google my name, Adam Fitzgerald 911. I come up, but if you go to my Twitter, underscore Adam Fitzgerald, on the pinned tweet, I have all the links on um, there, and you could take it to my WordPress, my my podcast with Richard Cox, The Dark and Dower. I'm on YouTube. I have currently up to 3,500 videos there, um, and um, and Medium actually. I still, I haven't wrote an article in four months, but I have about 117 articles there, and uh, it's all linked on my Twitter. Nice. Well, uh, I really enjoyed this chat, guys. Um, like I said, I know we scratched the surface of 9/11, and then obviously hit some music stuff at the very end. But um, we'll definitely have to do it again sometime. And uh, yeah, if you guys don't got anything else, we'll close her out. Sure. Oh, Great. Yeah, Thanks I, for having us. Just, yeah, just before you leave, the name of the band was Exodus. Oh, oh yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Exodus. Yeah, I love Exodus. I can't believe yeah. you didn't like them. Wow. <laughs> All right. well, like I said, we'll do it again, guys. This was uh, awesome. So, yeah, until next time, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Paul. Take care.